This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our material going back to 2008, don't miss out and subscribe. It's very simple. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com and you'll receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? Take a look at all the shows we've done so far and all the upcoming guests. You have no idea what these shows can do for you and your loved ones. You will never hear what they have to say in the mainstream media. I guarantee it. Remember, your greatest wealth is your health. Check it out at sanitasradio.com. And for MMS or our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, suggestions, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight we discuss Scientology, behind the glitter, beyond the cult, with our special guest, Tony Ortega, the executive director of The Raw Story at rawstory.com. Tony was formerly the editor of The Village Voice and has written about Scientology since 1995. He's currently working on a book about the church, and while he toils away on it, he continues to monitor breaking developments around the world from an undisclosed location in an underground bunker. Sounds like me and my lair. His website is TonyOrtega.org. But before I introduce Tony, let me share some details about this interview. The original guest was supposed to be Jamie DeWolf, the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, founder of the Church of Scientology. Unfortunately, even though he confirmed many times, Jamie the Wolf is nowhere to be found. I hope, I certainly hope, that he's okay. In doing what I do, you have to think quickly, especially after doing a lot of research. I found Tony Ortega as a, as a well-versed person when it comes to Scientology and left him a message. Not even five minutes later, he was responding to me. I asked him if he could take Jamie's spot and do the interview, and he has agreed. No warning, no preparation, an impromptu appearance, for which we should all be very, very grateful. 
And directly from New York City, I would like to introduce Tony Ortega. Hello, Tony, and welcome to Veritas. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mel. I, I, I wonder what happened with uh, Jamie. I know him well, and I, I'll have to find out what happened to him, but I'm glad I could fill in. Absolutely. And let me just start by saying that according to the Pew Research Center, 84% of the world's people identify with a religion. Many of these faiths have stood the test of time and, and are rooted in centuries-old historical tradition. However, one very prominent religion was created just 60 years ago. Yes, I'm referring to Scientology, founded by none other than science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard. But not every member of the Hubbard family is a member of the church. His great-grandson, Jamie DeWolf, is actually one of the most outspoken critics of what he calls a cult. Now, Tony, you interviewed first Jamie about his being so outspoken. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Jamie, uh, like I said, is L. Ron Hubbard's great-grandson. He was never in Scientology. His grandfather uh, was L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who changed his name to Ron DeWolf and became a very problematic figure for Scientology. He actually spoke out uh, you know, uh, about his father and about the church in ways Scientology didn't like. He kind of came uh, flip-flop back and forth. He was back in the good graces of Hubbard and then back out again. So Jamie grew up knowing about this, knowing about his grandfather, and Jamie was a uh, he was a performance artist. He, he's a person that goes up on stage and recites poems in a real dramatic way. And at some point, people had asked him, what about, you know, doing that kind of performance about your own background? And he originally did some work around the year 2000 that got him a little of attention. He kind of went away for it for a while. And then he came back uh, just a couple years ago with a stunning, just mesmerizing performance he put on video. And that's when I became aware of him where he talked about his grandfather and his grandfather's relationship to his, his father, Ron Hubbard. And it's, you, it's really easy to find on YouTube. Just search for Jamie DeWolf in Scientology and you'll see it. And he's really a talented person. He, just, he's a, he keeps you spellbound as he tells the story of Scientology and his family and the things that he heard. And he's at kind of a remove because he was never in it himself. But you can tell that he's really thought deeply about some of the conflicts that his grandfather had. And uh, I think he does a terrific job uh, talking about that. Now, you also mentioned other members of the family. Uh, actually, uh, it's kind of the opposite uh, from what you said. It's, it's, it's not that Jamie's the only member of the family that's not in. Virtually none of L. Ron Hubbard's descendants are in Scientology. There is only one left, and that is uh, Hubbard's daughter, Diana, uh, is still in the church and lives at the church headquarters in California, and that's it. His other children are out, grandkids, they're all out. And uh, it's, it's really only Diana who's left. And he's one of the most outspoken, of course, critics, and he's the village voice, which you probably obviously know. He's listed as number 22 out of 25 people crippling Scientology. Are you in that list, by the way? No, I made that list. Oh, you I, made I, the list. Yeah, I was, I, that was when I was editor of The Village Voice. And like I said, I had come across Jamie's uh, video, his, his performance, his spoken word performance, which, like I said, was just so spellbinding. And that summer, August of 2011, I think, I put together uh, what I call the top 25 people crippling the Church of Scientology. And uh, because there, you know, Scientology's really fallen on hard times, and there's a lot of reasons why. It's, it finds itself in the grip of several different crises, and there are a number of people that are are responsible for that. And so I went through the list, and I put Jamie at 22, I think, because he was pretty new and not that well known. And I think he's still, it's he's he's gradually becoming a little bit more well known, uh, and he's getting a little bit more television exposure. Recently, Upworthy paid attention to him, and that got him a lot more attention. So I might put it more like about 15 or 16 now on the list. Have you been, have you received any any threats, backlash or from the Church of Scientology for also being outspoken? Well, I've, I've, like I said, I've been writing uh, about Scientology for more than 18 years, and, and when you're a journalist, and you, it's, it's not just that you write one story about the church, but once you sort of stick around and continue to pay attention, you, you know that there are certain uh, 
risks with the job. Um, Scientology is very has very much earned its reputation for being a bully, and it spends a lot of money on litigation, on lawyers, on private investigators. And I don't like to talk about it a, a lot, but as somebody who's written about them for a long time, I have experienced some of their their techniques, and it's just you know it's not fun. It's they're they're a very intimidating organization, but um, you know. It's it's important that they be kept an eye on because of the way they treat people and the way they manipulate the law. So it's something that I continue to do, even though it's got some risks involved. I have to tell you, Tony, I remember when I was a teenager during my first job back in uh, 85, a year before Elrond died. Uh, I think it was a co-worker who gave me the book Dianetics. He said, you'd have to read this book. Uh, I really enjoyed it, let me admit. All of a sudden, I started receiving letters this is before the internet or, or email, to come to the Dianetics office. I'd never heard the word Scientology back then. Well, I went thinking we were going to be discussing science fiction, which I love. I then s- smelled a brilliant form of brainwashing to trap me. I never went back. I wonder how many other people experienced the same, Tony. Well, a lot of people uh, encounter Scientology's come-ons. Um, there are various ways, uh, either you know, encountering the book Dianetics, as you say. There, they also set up booths where, and they ask you to take a, a, a what they call a stress test, and there's also the personality test, which is probably their most familiar way of trying the e-meter? to attract. Uh, the, the personality test does not involve an e-meter. The stress test does. Uh, the personality test is this 200 questionnaire. Uh, that uh, it just asks you these basic questions about things like, uh, uh, you know, do you do you worry about what people say behind your back? Do you do you, do you obsessively go through uh, magazines? I mean, they're just strange questions that don't seem to have any connection. They you, they score your answers and then always tell you that you're screwed up and you need their help. I mean, it's just it's, I've talked to I've talked to people that administer those tests. And they say that it does not matter how you answer the, the their response will always be the same that you are in dire need of Scientology counseling, and it's just it's just a way of roping people in and getting them interested. Uh, and the same thing with the stress test. The stress test is a little demonstration of the e meter that um, uh, tries to convince people that it's it's a really marvelous tool. Uh, if you want, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the e meter and how yeah, it actually please. works. The e-meter is is a very crude uh, piece of electronics that's you know it's it's the most unsophisticated uh, little tool you can imagine. All it's doing is measuring skin galvanism, and that means that it's putting a tiny electric current through you uh, with the use of these two uh, sensors that you hold, and measuring fluctuations in that current. That can be affected by how hard you grip the uh, sensors, uh, how sweaty your palms are, the, co- the salt content of your sweat. All these things affect that little meter and will make the needle move. And once you've uh, become skilled at it, you can make that needle move all you want just by the way you manipulate the handles. But Scientologists are convinced that that needle is actually measuring something to do with your thoughts. They have this belief that thoughts have mass. And when you have certain kinds of thoughts, the meter is able to reflect that in the needle bouncing back and forth. There's absolutely no scientific evidence that that's true, but you cannot talk the Scientologists out of it. They, they are convinced that the, that the e-meter is this a magical device that can read their thoughts, read their minds. And how that becomes really crucial is that they, they believe that they cannot hold back a secret. That if they're holding, they call them cans, they're the cans, the sensors to this machine, that if they're holding the cans and they try to hold back a secret from the church, that that needle will betray them. And again, whether or not it's actually true, you know, it's just, like I said, it's just measuring a little current in your skin because they're convinced that that machine will be able to tell that they're holding back a secret. They cannot hold back those secrets. They are convinced they have to divulge everything. So one of the characteristics of being in Scientology is there are no secrets. They want to know everything about your personal life. They want to know about all of your sexual partners, everything you've done. Recently, in particular, they've had a real kick on masturbation. 
I've talked to numerous high-level Scientologists who have been called in, put on the meter, asked about their masturbation habits, and if they admit to it, they are charged three thousand dollars. <laughs> really? Now, 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 you, you know, I'm sure they have some justification for how this helps you advance in life, but I think most people would just think of it as a shakedown. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's that's what that. So that when you first encounter the e-meter and they do a stress test. What they do is they pitch you, and then they ask you to hold the, the cans of the meter, and then they say, think of that pitch again, and all of a sudden the needle moves. And they say, see, the meter can tell when you're thinking of pain. Mm. And so it's, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a parlor trick that, co- that convinces gullible people that this meter is this magical device that can read their thoughts when any electrical engineer who takes one apart will tell you that it's the most crude simple piece of electronics that measures nothing to do with your thoughts. It seems to be, uh, and I think L. Ron Hubbard designed it, it's a crude lie detector, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, he, again, it, it's, it is one, if, if you, a, light, a polygraph machine, a lie detector machine, does measure skilled galvanism, but it also measures heart rate and respiration. And so the person that's, re- that, you know, the expert who's reading a, a polygraph uh, test will ask a person a, a question. And it's not that the machine says, ooh, this person's lying. The machine records that when they're talking about something, their pulse goes up, their respiration goes up, the skin galvanism reacts, and the, the expert then says, you know what, I think that means this person was not telling the truth. And you see what I'm saying? It's just it's, it's a secondary device to describe a condition that suggests lying. The machine is not reading your mind. You know what I'm saying? And so the Scientology e-meter is only one-third of that device. It's only, it doesn't measure heart rate. It doesn't measure respiration. All it's doing is measuring a little fluctuation in your skin. How did you come in contact with Scientology? Were you part of Scientology before? No, I was just a reporter. At the time, I was in Phoenix, and I stumbled across a great story about a man named Rick Ross, who was a cult programmer who had gotten into a lawsuit. And... Um, involved a, a lot of different organizations, but one of them happened to be Scientology. And uh, he was unhappy with the way the daily newspaper had uh, reported on his on his lawsuit. And um, I heard about it, and I was working for a weekly newspaper, and part of what we did there was try to, try to dig into the stories that the daily wasn't really giving full attention to. And so I met him and found him a really fascinating guy. And wrote my first. It was my first cover story for that newspaper, a lengthy story about Rick Ross, and and a part of it was on Scientology. And I'd, I'd always had kind of a fascination for Scientology. I'd always I'd read about it, thought it was interesting, and so that just started me. After that, I, I, you know, once it's just one of those things when you're a reporter and you find something particularly interesting and juicy, one story will tend to lead you to another. Uh, a few years that was in 1995 in Phoenix. A few years later, I moved back to L.A. where I'm from, and, and of course that put me in one of the headquarters of Scientology Worldwide, and um, I did a bunch, several stories there that were really important to me. Uh, one in particular is still one of my favorite of all time uh, about a woman named Tori Chrisman, who was a longtime member who had come out in a really interesting way, and I got to write the first uh, story about what she went through. So one story led to another. Eventually I ended up in New York uh, editing The Village Voice, and um, that was when the anonymous movement started up early in 2008. And I realized that, boy, they were just really ravenous for anything about Scientology. And so I contacted some of my old um, sources, including Tori in Los Angeles, and started doing stories online at that time. And, boy, it just they just went crazy. You know, I mean, there's a real hunger for Scientology stories, uh, partly because of anonymous, partly because of the celebrities. And uh, it just, you know, it just doesn't seem to go away. People just really find Scientology fascinating. Rick Ross, don't, doesn't Scientology have a 75-page PDF on his entire life? How oh, many yeah. times he was counseled when he was a child and everything else? Yeah, they call that a dead agent pack. Yeah. Um, they assemble those about people. Um, and they were particularly, they, they were particularly interested in Rick Ross, which is kind of interesting because Rick, Rick was a deprogrammer, but he he didn't he rarely ever had anything to do with Scientology, but they but they perceived him as an enemy for whatever reason, and so uh, that was part of my story uh, 18 years ago when I read about wrote about Rick, 
was that they they had dug up every little thing about his childhood, and, and Rick had been had gotten in some trouble as a teenager, and so they had all of that material, and they would just hand out. They called it a DA pack, a dead agent pack, and because uh, there are there, and that comes from Hubbard. Hubbard. It, one thing you have to know about Scientology is whenever you wonder about anything that they do, it all comes back to Hubbard. And Hubbard in the fifties and sixties had set out a number of policies for how to deal with bad press, how to deal with enemies. And he, he outlined this idea of a dead agent pack. And if you put together a packet of material about this person and spread it around town, then nobody will listen to them and you undercut their credibility. So wherever Rick Ross went, uh, I remember one time I, he gave a talk at a, at a university and I went there to watch for my story. And there were copies of this. I think it was a 200-page dead agent pack, just in stacks all around the room as Scientology had set out for people to read. And he ignores it because, I mean, you know, he, he's, I think he's, he's now 60 years old and he's considered an expert around the country on, on new religious movements. But that, uh, you know, this was stuff that happened when he was, what, 16 years old and Scientology still trying to get, and they do that to everybody. I mean, like Marty Rathman, for example, is today a really interesting figure. He was a top uh, executive in the church until he left, and now he's speaking out about the church. So, you know, it, it turned out that in 2000, I don't know, 2006 or seven, he got married in New Orleans, got drunk, and was arrested. Which, you know, who cares, right? Except Scientology trots that out every single time. You know, oh, well, he was arrested in New Orleans. Like, that, what's that got to do with that? You know, so that's, that's, but that's Scientology's standard procedure. Oh, they always try to try to, you know, hurt the credibility of anybody that's critic. Uh, and, and, and it seems that uh, when, when, when somebody speaks against them, if you, let's say, interview somebody, they start talking over you whenever you're going to start talking, and they start calling you a bigot, or they start calling you derogatory terms. But you mentioned Elron Jr., I believe. Wasn't he also responsible for writing some of the protocols that dealt with critics and, and strong-arming tactics? I don't know that I don't know that Nibs is what they call him. Uh, he was also, like I said, changed his name to Ronald Wolf later, but... I don't know that Nibs ever wrote any policies about handling the press. Uh, it was pretty much all L. Ron Hubbard. You know, I've read I've read all those policies by Hubbard, and they all by him. Nibs, uh, uh, L. Ron didn't have much to do with his son's life until he was about eighteen, and then suddenly, because uh, I think when Hubbard broke up with Polly, his first wife. Nibs was only about seven or eight years old. And then they didn't have anything much to do with him. And then when suddenly when Nibs was 18, he was invited by his dad to join him in Phoenix in 1952. And that's where Hubbard originally had come up with Dianetics, and then he got bankrupt, and he had all kinds of problems with his second wife. And then he kind of regrouped in Phoenix in 1952. At that point, he couldn't use the word Dianetics anymore. He lost it in bankruptcy. And so he had to come up with a new name, and so he reinvented his movement and called it Scientology. So that's why I got that new name. And that's when he invited his son to join him. And, and Nibs was 18. He hadn't really been a part of his dad's life for a long time. He was thrilled. All of a sudden, he's, he's, he's a big guy in Phoenix. He's teaching classes. Uh, and he, he was really excited about that. But I don't think – and so his dad trusted him to run classes, and he made some money. But I don't think Hubbard ever trusted his son to actually write church policies. And within a few years, uh, Hubbard, uh, El the father, changed some of his policies, so it was making it tougher for Nibs to actually make a living, even though he was working for his dad. And he left, and he left Scientology kind of bitter, and then began a number of years where Nibs would uh, provide testimony against Scientology and denounce his dad, and then he'd come crawling back to Hubbard. He flip-flopped several times over the next, you know, 20 years. Uh, and then he, uh, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't live much longer, much longer after his dad died because <clears throat> Nibs had his own health problems. I think Nibs died in about 92, something like that. How did a science fiction writer turn around from writing fiction to founding, founding a religion almost you know, overnight? You know, it's a great, it's a great question. And, um, it's one that, I'm not sure it's been fully explained. He, Hubbard's early life is really fascinating. He, 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 
he wanted people to le believe that he'd led, led a real legendary life and he exaggerated a lot of things. But if you look at, if you get past the sort of tall tales and get to the real data, Hubbard did lead a fascinating life. And he was a really uh, somewhat successful writer. He was voluminous. He wrote a ton of stories in the 30s and 40s. Didn't make a lot of money, but that's why he kept working so hard. And But then it, he, he pointed to a couple of different experiences. In 1938, uh, before World War II, while he was still just a, you know, a penny a word uh, pulp writer, he had a very odd experience. He talks about uh, he had to go to the dentist for something, and they put him under uh, nitrous, and he, and he had some sort of experience. He talked about finding himself sort of like, on some otherworldly place and, and and of all times and meeting, uh, he had some kind of you know thing happen to him and it had some kind of profound effect on him. He claimed that afterwards he had gotten so much wisdom from that one experience that he wrote this manuscript called Excalibur, and it contained all the world's wisdom or something, and it was so radical and so uh, consciousness expanding or whatever. That he claimed the first of the first twelve people who read it, six of them killed themselves. Well, I mean, this is a tall tale, and it's it, it's actually repeated in the mask the movie, The Master. If you've seen that, and I don't think nobody believes it. I don't even. He may have actually written something, but it's I don't I don't know that it's ever been revealed. But anyway, uh, he he went away to World War II. He came back, uh, and then he was kind of. It was in Los Angeles when he started hanging out with Jack Parsons, the uh, Caltech uh, rocket scientist right. who was also into the occult. And uh, Parsons had this interesting house in Pasadena that he he he, he had a number of different housemates, at, but he he insisted basically would only rent to other eccentrics. So there was this house filled with really odd, interesting people, bohemians, occultists, and uh, Hubbard quickly became his favorite house guest. Uh, to the point where Hubbard actually stole his girlfriend from him and eventually became Hubbard's second wife. And they, you know, according to Parsons and Hubbard, they got up to some pretty strange uh, occult sex magic rituals uh, as acolytes of Aleister Crowley, the uh, British occultist. And this is something that Church of Scientology really uh, denies and, and denounces. But the documents are clear that, you know, for a few years of 40 Five to forty-six, uh, Hubbard and, and Crowley got up to these interesting uh, antics. Then a couple years later, uh, Hubbard was really suffering and had written to the War Department saying he really wanted psychiatric care, didn't get it. Um, and then in forty-eight, forty-nine, he started talking to his friends about this this new science of the mind that he'd come up with. And around that time, uh, there are several different people. And I, I remember, I have to tell you, Mel, at one point, I, I believe this was an apocryphal story, but I, I checked into it with the help of John Atek, and I'm now convinced this is true, that to several different people, he said a variation of the same thing in 48, 49, and that was the, the real money is to be made in religion. And he said this, yeah. to, he said this in the presence of uh, Harlan Ellison, who I've talked to about that. Uh, he, there are specific people in New Jersey that heard him say that, 48, 49, some version of that, right? Like, you know, if you really want to make a million, you have to start a religion or, or some, some variation of that statement that in 48, 49, he was saying that. He, this next part of the story is he, he claimed that he had come up with this manuscript about, this new manuscript about this, this new science of the mind. He, did, he discovered the true nature of the mind. And he tried to share it with people with the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association. And they had laughed at him and said this was all bunk. And so that's what supposedly motivated him to then go to one of his favorite editors uh, at Astounding Stories. Uh, and I'm going I'm to get the name wrong. Uh, who was the editor then? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm blanking on it. Uh, it was, was it William Campbell or John Campbell? I'm, I'm forgetting it. So it wasn't Joseph Campbell. I always get that wrong. But anyway, his editor of Astounding Stories, who was thrilled, he thought it was great. And so um, they planned kind of a simultaneous publication. It came out in the May 1950 edition 
of astounding stories. John, astounding. John Wood Campbell. That's it, John W. Campbell. Yeah. And it was, I think it was Astounding Science Fiction is what it was the name of the magazine. It came out in May 1950, and within just a couple of weeks, the book itself came out as well. That's Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. Uh, have you read the book, Mel? Oh, absolutely. That's what hooked me back in 1985. <laughs> well, I've I've blogged it cover to cover with the help of somebody that knew it really well. And I have to say, I'm I'm amazed that it became a bestseller because it's it's so strange. And his idea was that he puts forward in the book is that uh, uh, when we when when that our consciousnesses are perfect computers that could soak up every memory at 100% uh, accuracy. However, we have various things in our nature that prevent that from working in top uh, capacity. When, we, when we're unconscious, there's another part of the mind that takes over and records everything called the reactive mind. And particularly when we're knocked unconscious and we experience pain, those memories are stored in something called engrams. And those engrams later get re-stimulated and mess up our analytical mind. Uh, now, and I, you know, the thing is, as a metaphor, I think there's a real uh, attractive quality to this idea, uh, because he was saying that you've stored up all these engrams in your mind, and the way to get the way the way to uh, and they mess you up because they get re-stimulated and they and they 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 ruin a lot of your your current life. Um, and so to deal with them, what you do is you sit down with what he called an auditor, and the auditor just asks you questions, just asks you questions about what's messing up your life, what are the problems in your life, until you can rediscover those earlier experiences and remember the awful things that you went through. And if you talk about them enough, you lessen their, their capacity to harm you. Now, strictly on a, on a philosophical metaphor level, I, I think there's a lot to that, and I think I think there's a lot shared in that with other forms of therapy. Uh, no question, if you sit down with somebody and talk about your life and talk about the things that were difficult in your life, you will feel better. Except that Hubbard wasn't talking metaphorically. He was talking literally that these engrams were stored in the protoplasm of your cells and that there was this perfect recording computer inside the mind. And the most damaging engrams, the most damaging uh, experiences or uh, uh, harmful things that you went through happened while you were still in the womb or when you were a sperm or an egg. And he became obsessed with the idea that uh, your parents fighting or having sex had given you memories inside you as a fetus that were holding you back 40 years later. And some of the some of the examples are ludicrous. You know, that a mother used a certain word after dad had bumped into her stomach and knocked the fetus unconscious and then mom yelled a word that 40 years later was causing a person to have ulcers. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was absolutely ludicrous, but it was, for some reason, it grabbed the public's attention. And in the summer of 1950, there was a craze. There was a public craze across America as people founded auditing uh, clubs and got together and tried to find out what they had each been through in the womb. Um, and this was one of the, you know, I, I understand there are some people today who, who uh, try to use this sort of prenatal therapy or whatever. But, you know, it was briefly a fad in America that you would sit down with somebody with this book Dianetics by this guy Hubbard, and you would you would try with another person to try to remember what it had been like when you were a fetus inside your mother. Almost like and regression hypnotherapy. It was a regression therapy. It was definitely hypnotherapy, and uh, it was very popular for a short time. Hubbard made a lot of money, uh, but you know, within uh, within by the end of the year, it was over. And uh, and Hubbard had started some foundations that he had bills for, and it kind of came crashing down. 1951 was one of the worst years of his life. His second wife wanted to divorce him. He, he absconded with their child. He was denounced in the press. And then he built it back up starting in 52 with something called Scientology. Now, by that time, and this was actually very well dramatized in The Master. I think a lot of people went to see, uh, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's movie The Master a couple of years ago thinking they were going to see something else. But Paul Thomas Anderson did, actually did a very good job portraying the big decision Hubbard had to make in 1952. 
1950, the, the attraction for people was the idea that they could go back into the womb and remember what, they, what it was like as a fetus. And if they did that, it would help them release their sort of potential as a superhuman. But by 1952, people, some of his followers weren't satisfied with just going back to the womb. They wanted to go back farther. They, they liked the idea that we had lived previous lives. And then maybe something that had happened to us, you know, 30 lives ago, several thousand years ago, was still back in there hurting us today. And th those were the memories we needed to get at. In 1952, when he started Scientology, that was the material that he decided to adopt, even though it really rubbed some, some of his original followers the wrong way. And that's what Paul Thomas Anderson is dramatizing in that movie. Is that, is that Hubbard had to make a decision, do I go all the way to past lives and lose some of these people who really believed that Dianetics was a science? Because clearly when you start talking about past lives, now you've moved from something that, you know, it's harder to call science and you have to admit it's more of a spiritual pursuit. So that was a really fascinating period for Hubbard, and I thought that that movie did a pretty good job uh, uh, portraying that. But ever since then, uh, since 52, Scientology has been more about exploring past lives. So now when you do auditing with the e-meter, uh, your auditor is trying to help you track down those engrams that might be left over from lives millions or billions of years ago and on other planets. Somebody asked me, thinking of the master and the movie and Philip Seymour Hoffman, do you think Philip Seymour Hoffman's death is at all suspicious? And I'm thinking of fair game, if you know what I mean. Is it all suspicious I, given his recent performance as Hubbard in The Master? I don't, I don't think so. I, I think that um, at the time when uh, uh, the movie was coming out, I had gotten an early version of the script. Uh, and I have to tell you, that early script was much harsher on Scientology than what they ended up filming. And by the time the movie itself was coming out, they were being very careful. I mean, everybody from Harvey Weinstein down, all the actors, they were being very careful not to say anything antagonistic about Scientology, to deny that the movie was even about Scientology. I don't think, I think they really did not want to engender the wrath of the church. And Scientology, for its part, completely ignored it, Just which was smart. I thought, I, you know... A lot of times Scientology does itself no favors, but, you know, but I think in this case, Scientology did the right thing and just ignored the movie because it was a kind of an arty movie. It only had a limited, you know, appeal anyway. And, and, and uh, I have to say, having read the early script, I wish, I wish Anderson had stuck to that script because what he ended up filming was kind of odd and, and slow. And so it really wasn't that popular. It didn't have that big of sales. I think Scientology was smart to, uh, to ignore it. And, uh, I, you know, reading about what's come out since Hoffman's death about him, you know, this was a guy who had this problem for a long time and had been, you know, uh, you know, you, 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 you play around with heroin, you know, you're playing a pretty risky game. So, no, I don't, I don't see anything suspicious at this point. And uh, knowing Scientology history the way I do, uh, that's that's not how Scientology plays. I mean, if Scientology really wanted to mess with those actors, it would have been in a very different way. So, my I don't I don't have any. I'm, I'm resisting that. I believe me, and I believe me, Mel. I've heard from plenty of readers that would love for there to be some kind of a connection and keep asking me if I'm going to look into that, but I just, I don't perceive anything at this point. What about people who join and become indebted? Yeah, I mean, Scientology is a very expensive pursuit. It's incredibly expensive. It starts cheap. The first couple of courses are either free or maybe $50. Uh, but we've been documenting this. Uh, there's a woman named Claire Headley, who a uh, really terrific person. She was a longtime Scientologist. She was such an expert on the, what they call the technology that of auditing and all that, that she had actually been trusted to oversee Tom Cruise's uh, auditing. So she, she was actually like the supervisor of the person who was auditing Tom Cruise. And she and I, starting about a year ago, started a special series on my website, and we, we do every week called Up the, Up the Bridge. And I, I, you know, I'd heard about this forever, that there are various steps you go through and they get more and more expensive. But I'd never seen any publication go step by step to describe that. So that's what we've been doing over the last year. So we started at the very beginning with the personality test. And each week she would take us to another course 
And we would talk about, you know, exactly what was involved in it, what concepts were being, you know, uh, learned, how, you know, how indoctrination works, how people get more and more cut off from the outside world. And at the end of each post, I would put what that week's level cost and we'd watch the, the bounce go up. Well, we're just now, we're now at OT6, operating thing level six, which means we've been through a lot of levels. We're, uh, I think we're 42 uh, uh, episodes into it. So that's, you know, a lot of steps. It would take you years to get this far. And at this point, the total is $330,000. So uh, this is a very expensive pursuit. And if you don't have that money just sitting in the bank, they hound you to find it. Uh, there have been some wonderful stories. Tampa Bay Times did a great story, a series of stories in November 2011, where they, they talked to the, uh, they call them regs, which is short for registrars. These are the people whose entire job is to get people to pay for Scientology services. And these, these regs are ruthless. I mean, they bring people, this, they, they interviewed this one guy, High Levy, and he talked all about how he got people to come in. And he was a very pleasant guy. I mean, I'm sure that as he's picking your pocket, he made you feel like you were doing, he was doing you a favor. But, you know, he would, he would go through, okay, let's go through your, your bank accounts. Let's go through all your credit cards. Let's talk about putting a second mortgage in your home. I mean, these people, uh, you know, another one that just came up was, uh, there was a young guy named Steve Mango that was just in for a few years, and he came out and made a video about his experience. He was talking about how at one point, uh, uh, 10 registrars, regs surrounded him, each with an iPad, and they they were determined to get, they wanted him to pay something like 5000 or 3000 something like that, for the next step on his bridge, and he said, I don't have it. I, I don't have that money. He was, a, he was a struggling actor. He didn't have much money. So what they did was all 10 of them took his information and all applied for credit cards at the same time. Just sitting right there in the room. You know, wow. all these ten all these ten registrars with iPads. And the reason they did it simultaneously was that if they applied for one and then applied for another and then applied for another, then banks would notice that, you see, and it would be a problem. But by doing that all simultaneously, the banks wouldn't be able to check and it doesn't hit the credit report if you do it all at the same time. Yes. Exactly. And so they were all attempting to get this guy, and he said that they all tried and they all failed. And he, because this, I guess, is a young guy without much credit history, you know. They all tried, they all failed, and he said, "Oh, I'm sorry about that." I said, "No, that's just the first step. Now what we're going to do is we're going to call the bank and see if we can't get them to raise your minimums, etc." And he said they're not going to do it. And and according to Steve Mango, he was told by this registrar that no, we've got people who work at the banks that will raise those minimums for us. So, I mean, it was wow. very, and yeah, and he, he said American Express in particular, he was told, was one place to have people working there who will uh, raise minimums for them. So, really fascinating uh, allegations made by people about just how much they get people to uh, spend money and spend money they don't have. Is there narcissism to the church, and this is why we see celebrities join them and um, you know when we think of, of Scientology you, you, we think of two people first Tom Cruise John Travolta and then we can go Leah Remini who left and I'd like to discuss her too but let's start with the narcissism is there part is this an important part to Scientology that's a, that's a great question I think that's why they attract celebrities and that's you know people always ask that why you know Scientology is actually a tiny organization it's probably got no more than 30,000 people around the world even though they claim five or six million but if it's a tiny organization, why does it get so much attention? And one of the reasons is because they've got celebrities. You know, uh, That's something that Hubbard wanted. In 1955, he announced Project Celebrity, and he literally put bounties on the heads of TV and movie stars and would pay people if they would bring these people in. Uh, and they were, they were very poor at it at first, but eventually in the 70s and 80s, when Scientology got to its largest size, uh, they brought in some people, and that's when all those people joined. Uh, 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 Tom Cruise, Christy Alley, John Travolta, they all joined in the 70s and 80s, and, and they've pretty much been the same since then. They're not really attracting any big stars now. The, there are some young actors who are in Scientology, but they tend to be second-generation Scientologists, people like 
you know, Vani Rubisi, for example, grew up in a Scientology family. Beck is another, uh, you know, music star who grew up in Scientology. So they're not really attracting any new big stars now, but they do have some celebrities that they've had for a long time, and they get a lot of attention. And I am asked that. Why, why does it appeal to them? And you hit it right on the head. It is the narcissism. Think about it. When, you, when you're part of a Christian church or a Jewish synagogue, um, what do you do? You go to a, a building where there's a group of people, and you have a group experience where there's somebody telling a story about something that happened a couple thousand years ago. And, you know, I mean, it's, and you, you, you have this kind of communal experience. Scientology isn't like that at all. Scientology is you and your auditor in a room by yourselves, the two of you, and the auditor's asking you questions about your memories going back and back and back millions and billions of years. And it, from the first day you walk into Scientology, it's all about asking you about yourself. It's all about exploring this incredible universe inside your mind. It's you, you, you all the time. Well, you can imagine why that appeals to somebody like a movie star, right? Addicting to them. It's like it's like a church that's made entirely for them. That's how they feel about it, and they become very hooked on that. So, yeah, it's very narcissistic. It's hypnotic, and uh, and it becomes you know Claire Henley in that series I talked about. She's explained how each level builds on the previous one, as far as really hammering into your mind that you have to if you're going to be in Scientology, you have to accept that Scientology has all the answers. And if there's anything wrong in your life, anything wrong uh, with Scientology, it's all that you're just not understanding the Scientology lessons correctly. It's always your fault because Scientology works 100% of the time, every time. So if it's not working, if you have a problem, if you have a problem with another person in your family who doesn't like Scientology, the answer is always within Scientology. This training goes, it just gets hammered into them. Uh, they call it Keep Scientology Working, KSW. That's one of the things Tom Cruise talked about in that famous nine-minute video. He was like, ooh, KSW, wow. You know, that's been beat into his head. That that if there's any time if there's ever a problem, that he knows automatically I have to find the answer in Scientology and shut out any criticism of Scientology. Shut out anybody that says anything bad about it. I mean, that's that is just beat into their heads. With the Bible, for those who are religious, they can simply read it without having to pay to unlock every chapter. It's a different business model. And I say business because most organized religions survive on contributions or donations. But in this case, you have to pay to unlock every door or the secrets of God, right? Well, not only that, but they hold back so much. Now, you know, you, it's a great an analogy. If it, you know, you can talk to a, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. They can explain the gist of their religion in 30 seconds or less. You know what I mean? And yeah. you could you could be in that religion for the next 30 years and of course there are, there's more to learn, but ba that basic understanding never changes, right? I mean, you know, uh, how long does it take to explain that in Christianity if you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you'll live forever. I mean, that's it. That's all it is, right? And and 30 years later you can read a lot more about that's in the Bible and but basically that basic understanding never changes. Scientology is not like that at all. I mean, Scientology, uh, you know, at the lower levels, they're telling you, yeah, it's just a great way to help you communicate with other people. And we've got some processes and some exercises that'll unleash your potential. And all you got to do is join the group. Well, it's not until, you know, six years later and a couple of hundred thousand dollars in that you finally get to hear the backstory that 75 million years ago, the uh, galactic overlord Xenu Brought, had an overpopulation problem, and so he brought, brought billions of surplus aliens to a planet called Tegiak, that today we call Earth, packed them in volcanoes, uh, vaporized them with hydrogen bombs, captured their souls electronically, and then subjected them to a month of watching 3D movies that implanted into their minds <laughs> things like Jesus, Buddha, all the ancient religions. And then set them loose on the world. And then they then inhabited whatever creatures they could find, which evolved over time until eventually they, the humans appeared several million years later and they got inside of humans. And so today, our problems are that they're, each one of us is carrying around hundreds or thousands of these excess disembodied uh, alien souls, which they call body things. And the upper, upper levels of Scientology are basically a kind of exorcism where you're paying 
hundreds of dollars an hour to get rid of these body things. And that's that, you know, hey, John Travolta, Tom Cruise, they're on the upper levels. That's what they're paying for. How high are they, Tony? I was afraid you're going to ask me that. Um, I know that I know that Cruise least OT seven, but I don't know if he's OT eight. OT eight's the top. Uh, and honestly, I'm not sure on Travolta. But OT, everything from OT three to OT seven is about removing body things. It's that it's that hundreds of dollars an hour exorcism of these excess beings that are attached to you, that are, are visible. Are there any similarities between the Masonic, uh, you know, Masons, because they have to go through the levels, and once you go above 33rd degree, then you are in the in the upper crust, if you will. Is there something similar with Scientology? Well, let, well, let, me, let me contrast it. Well, first, let me just, I mean, the point, the reason we were talking about that, you brought up the point that uh, how it's different than Christianity and some of the other religions. Yes. And so let's finish that point. Imagine if, when they had their little personality test and their stress test on the street, you came up to them and, and, you know, like I said, you can go up to a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim and ask them, what's your religion about? They can explain it in a minute and it never changes. Well, imagine if Scientologists explained that story about Zenu and the, and, and the excess, Oh, you know what Scientology is about? You'll be spending several hundred dollars an hour, an hour to remove uh, invisible space aliens that are attached to you. I mean, how many people would join? Yeah. If they were upfront about that's what they do, and so it's it is a business model. It's like we're only going to release a small amount, of, and that's that's my single biggest beef with Scientology is if they were more open and honest about what they were about, I think a lot of the criticism would fall away. But that they have that essential deception that they will not tell you what they're about, and when and when a reporter goes to the spokesperson and asks, "Isn't that what it's about?" they will deny it even though it's been well-established in court records and every high-level Scientologist that leaves says, yes, that's what we do. Well, boil it down to the smallest degree. What happened to me? I'm not a celebrity, nor was I then back in 85, but I felt that it was bait and switch. I was reading this book that I thought was science fiction, and all of a sudden, it's bait and switch. They trapped me. The bait was the book. I go in there. They weren't successful in capturing me, but how many others who are impressionable are captured? Right. Well, and then you ask, now let, now let me address your question about the Masons. I, I, I understand why you draw that analogy because it, it, there is this, um, there's definitely kind of a gamification of Scientology. A lot of, some people have actually compared it to video games. And it actually yeah, is kind levels. of, it is kind of, it is kind of a, an apt analogy because you're going up levels. There's definitely kind of a gaming of it. Oh, you're OT1, I'm OT2. Yeah. And they, and they experience that. I've talked to them about that, you know, even if you've gone through the grades, You'll be told, yeah, but you haven't been to the OTs yet. Mm. And, and, and there's definitely kind of a competition and it, it draws you forward. You want, you know, you're, you're, once you get, there's, you know, you're going to get to OT3, you're not going to believe it. So, you, you know, you want to get there to find out what it is. However, where I think it breaks down the analogy with the Masons is you're not gaining more power as far as in the organization. Uh, in fact, a lot of the publics, they're called, public Scientologists who, who don't work for the church, but they pay the big money to go up these OT levels. The people who actually run the church and who are the most dedicated, I think in a lot of ways, they kind of laugh at these publics. You know, they think they see them as sheep that are being shorn. And so you could, you could be OT8, absolutely top, have spent half a million dollars and another half million to a million in donations. And they'll give you some certificates and you'll get to go to some nice parties but you will be no closer to having any influence on how that how that organization is run. So you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. like you're you're not in order to be indoctrinated. In order to get to that kind of uh, influence and power, you have to join something that's called the Sea Organization. The Sea Org is sort of the the inner hardcore of Scientology. There's about three or four thousand of them around the world, and they run all the most important uh, functions in the church. In order to join the Sea Org, you have to go through really rigorous uh, testing, and and uh, you have to be checked out thoroughly. Uh, generally, they like to bring people into the Sea Org when they're only twelve or thirteen years old, so that they they really have no understanding of the outside world how it works. And um, you have to sign a billion year contract, and it's it's literally. I mean, it says that. So on what the is form. that? Leah Remini signed that same thing. Billion year, you said. 
yeah, she joined the Sea Org when she was about 10 years old, yeah. and that's what, you have to sign us a billion-year contract. And, and the idea of that is, is remember, they, Scientology really looks at the long view. They believe that they've been, they've been alive for millions and billions of years, that, that their essential soul, their fate, has been uh, lived countless lives, and it will live countless more. So this, this, this life that we're leading right now is very temporary. This body that we're in is just something we're walking around in right now. So they have very little value on the here and now. They really think, oh, building your contract, what's the deal? You're going to come back again and again and again and work for the church all those times, see? So they asked 10-year-olds, they asked 7-year-olds to sign billion-year contracts and devote their lives to the church. And then Sea Org members work. Uh, I talked to a young woman. There's one young woman who's, who's lost who's going through the church. When she was 13 years old, she was working 96-hour weeks. How old when was she? 13. 13. 96 hour weeks. When she was 15, they bumped her up to 112 hour weeks. Sleep deprivation is part of the control. They're okay? trying to break her. It, it's, it's, you have no, you have no, all you do is just do what you're told at that point, right? I mean, they just get up in the morning, they work all day, all night, they fall asleep for four hours, they're back on a job. And, they uh, they perform every task from the most menial cleaning toilets and and, and painting buildings to to the people who run the PR in the church, the people who run the programs. These are all Sea Org members, and these are the people who who do the work. And there are a few Sea Org people at the top who really run things. And only one person in the entire Sea Org carries the name of captain, and that is David Miscavige. And that is why. David Miscavige is the absolute iron-fisted ruler of the entire Scientology movement. Now, from a corporate point of view, it doesn't look that way at all. If you look at it from a corporate point of view, there are dozens of entities, from the Church of Scientology International to the Religious Technology Center to the Church of Spiritual Technology to Author Services Incorporated to Bridge Publications. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an alphabet soup of organizations that each have a president and a treasurer and a secretary and a board of trustees. It's all a fiction. I have talked to the members who actually helped Hubbard create that corporate structure in the early 1980s, and they will tell you it is all a sham, that all that matters is the sea organization, and the captain of the sea organization is David Miscavige, and he runs everything. So getting back to your question, no, you could go through all the levels, and you could spend all the money. But you're still just a flunky public Scientologist. And even though you've reached all the way to OT8, that doesn't give you any influence on David Miscavige or how he runs his church. Who chose David Miscavige? That's a great question. I mean, when Hubbard, uh, you know, uh, not too many organizations like this survived their founder's death, you know. And right. Hubbard, um, Hubbard spent most of his final 15 years on the run. You know, uh, he was hiding from one country or another, and um, he finally went into permanent exile uh, in February 1980. And nobody, he just vanished. Reporters couldn't find him. Almost the entire membership of the church never heard from him again. A tiny number of people knew where he was. He spent some of that time in uh, Culver City, some of the time in Manhattan Beach, and then he moved up to this ranch in, uh, near Crescent, California in 1983, where he spent the last three years of his life. And there were only two or three people who were with him all the time. Two of the people that were with him during those final six years was a young couple named Pat and Annie Broker. And they were, they were uh, you, know, you know, these lifelong members. And he, uh, at some point in his last couple years, Hubbard wrote up a directive where he named Pat and Annie loyal officers and if you know the sort of xenu uh mythology uh part of that whole story there's bad guys in the galaxy and then there's good guys called loyal officers so this seemed to be a pretty clear indication from hubbard that when he was gone the only two people he had named loyal officers were pat and annie but he really named two people that were wholly unsuited to learning scientology but annie annie broker was a follower she would have done anything for Elrond Hubbard. She was with him to the very end, taking care of his needs. She was not somebody that was going to really have the capacity to run uh, Scientology. And Pat Broker, uh, 
Pat also kind of lacked leadership qualities. He was, during the last couple of years, he was spending a lot of time away from the ranch um, raising horses. He, he, you know, he didn't seem like he was that into it. So he had picked two people that were really not ruthless enough to run an organization like that. In the meantime, there were a number of other young people that were increasingly amassing power in the organization, in particular a young guy named David Miscavige. Miscavige had come from South Philly. He had joined Scientology at only, four, I think, 14 years old. He had very quickly become someone who was around Hubbard a lot in California when they were making films. And he was just a ruthless little guy. He's, he's, he's maybe five foot two, uh, asthmatic. And, uh, but he, you know, very, uh, I think he does a lot of bodybuilding and that kind of thing. So he's, you know, he's always kind of, uh, looking fit and he was very intimidating. He, despite his height, he was the kind of guy that would just rip people to shreds. And he, and at, in the last couple of years, when Hubbard was hiding at that ranch with the brokers, Pat would Pat would bring communications from Hubbard, and uh, broker and David Miscavige would meet in the middle of the night. They had five different like areas in San Bernardino area plotted out, and they would use code names. So they'd say like hot dog at two a.m. right, and so they'd go. That meant one particular Denny's restaurant parking lot or something. <laughs> And uh, I know this because I know uh, the guy that would drive to Miscavige to those locations was his brother-in-law at the time. His name is John Brousseau, and he's out now, and he's told me all these things. So John Brousseau would drive Miscavige to the hot dog location or whatever it was, and they'd meet. And that's how Hubbard's communications would get passed to the rest of the church. Was Miscavige would take them from broker and send them out. So then when, when Hubbard died in January of 1986... Um, Miscavige was one of the first people to go to the ranch to kind of, you know, figure out what had gone on. And s- over that next year, despite the fact that Hubbard had named Pat and Annie Broker to be his successors, Miscavige basically muscled them out of the way. Now, to this day, there are people in the Scientology movement who are very angry about this and will tell you that, oh, you know, this isn't what Hubbard wanted and Miscavige took it over illegally. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that. It, you know, somebody was going to muscle the brokers out of the way. They really were not leader types. You know what I'm saying? And, it, you know, if it wasn't Miscavige, it would have been, you know, somebody else in the organization. So Miscavige was in the right place to, to you know, wrestle things under control. And within a few years, it was very clear that he was running Scientology. He was very young. He was in his mid-20s that time. And today, he's still... Today, he's still only like, what, 53 or something? 52, 53. That's right. So, you know, he's still a young man. And uh, although he hasn't been looking good, people, a lot of my readers were surprised. I put some video up of the most recent celebrations they had. And he's lost some weight. And uh, I think he's under a lot of stress right now because there's some lawsuits that are really rocking Scientology right now that are, are probably stressing him out. But that's how he, that's how he took over. He just basically muscled out Pat, Pat Nanny. And he's been in control ever since. What about the mysterious deaths of, of church members? Most notably, I can think of one, Lisa McPherson. She was held for 17 days by members before she died. Is the church involved in the cover-ups? Lisa McPherson's case is is uh, really depressing and distressing. And Thank you very much for listening to this great Veritas interview with Tony Ortega, discussing Scientology, Behind the Glitter, Beyond the Cult. We're going to continue with part two in the member section. A lot deeper coming up, and I hope you don't miss it. If you're not a Veritas member, go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe button. You'll receive your login immediately. Let's listen to some music, and after, join me in the member section. Enjoy. Drop some science on Scientology. They'll run Hubbard's weird sci-fi philosophy. They cloud theology and top secrecy. Technology, mythology, and no apology. 1952 was when it all began. Started on a bet by a frustrated man. His books weren't selling, so everyone thought fast. He started his own religion and make a lot of cash. Alien rulers, pastelized tone scales, copywritten text, and scary emails. Shutting up the critics, core battles left and right. Mysterious deaths in the middle of the night. Personality tests, email 
meters knocking on Times Square recruitment from dusk to dawn All this from the guy who wrote Battlefield Earth Salvation for a fee, let's see what your soul's worth There's a place in Florida where you've got friends We'll help you transcend if you give us those ends Party at the church Target for their army of elite. They feed their self-esteem and make them feel complete. They mess with their minds. Just look at Tom Cruise jumping on the couch during Oprah's interviews. John Travolta fights Satan's in his Florida estate, piloting his plane, Dianetics books on tape. Beck counts past lives in a temple in Bel Air. Katie Holmes stays home and plays pregnant solitaire. Isaac Hayes still pays to reach that upper level state, but left South Park when they hated on his face. Sunny Bono made donations, should have bought better skis. Dougie Fresh recruits haters on the mic as EMCs. Juliet Lewis, Jason Lee, and Shaka. Con. Because of Elron, all their money is gone. Shikaria, Kirstie Alley, and Nancy Cartwright. Hope's weekly prayer circles on the UFO headlines. Once you step into the temple, your troubles will be gone. We'll get you back on track, everybody sing along. Party at the church of Scientology. Don't listen to the lies, you know they're all untrue. So why not come right down, cause we're waiting for you. Party at the church of Scientology. So that's Scientology. S-E-U-D-O-R-E-L-I-G-I One you've heard so now you know They drain your cash fast so as long as you agree You can't put a price on freedom when it's coming COD Okay they ruin lives and it sounds like science fiction What about Noah's Ark, Jesus and the crucifixion? Faith is subjective, you can't say who's right or wrong Though I'll probably end up missing just for writing this song Hey did you guys hear that the Easter Bunny's bringing Bigfoot to the meeting tonight? This is Tony Ortega and you're listening to Veritas <laughs> 